Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. I'm going to start with this podcast with a question for you, dear listener. Have you ever noticed how attractive can a heat pump be? Maybe it's the mysterious look, the broad shoulders, or the fact that it's always hot when you need it. Or maybe is it because of its true commitment to sustainability? Our heat pump, the George Clooney of the energy sector. To help you make sense of those questions, today I've invited Dr. Michael Fall, a research associate at UCL Energy Institute. Mike focuses on social aspects of energy demand flexibility and the use of systematic review methods in energy demand research. He's developed an augmented reality tool and a super fun page called Heat Pump Shake that allows you to see, hear, and feel what it's like to have a heat pump. Mike, welcome to Energetic. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you, Mike, for being with me today. So, Mike, why are heat pumps so hot for you? Well, I guess in some ways they started, like their hotness first became apparent to me when I saw how ugly some of them were. I know this is kind of a bad way to start. But, yeah, I was chatting to a colleague who was thinking about a heat pump and who is into gardening I was like, well, you know, they just don't look great. I don't really know where I could fit it into the garden. So I searched online and most of the images that come up look a bit like the kind of backyard of a sort of a warehouse somewhere in the suburbs of a city with like these kind of big industrial looking fan type heat pumps put in a cage. And I was like, oh God, there must be some better than this. And of course there are modern heat pumps increasingly, uh, designed to look really attractive, to be different colors, blend into different surroundings. But I just thought, you know, if lots of the things that people are seeing, if you look on, do some research online, aren't very attractive, that could be pretty off-putting. It's tempting to think as someone who thinks about energy, as an energy researcher, you know, that people might be interested in the efficiency of their heat pump mainly and the the cost saving and okay, all of those things are important. But people are also really interested in how their homes look. I mean, look at what people spend <laughs> most of their money on, you know, choosing a nice home if they can and thinking about how they do the garden and extensions and so on. So I kind of thought this is an area that's interesting to do something in. That's so fun because uh, somehow I also feel that people don't care about how their gas boiler looks like. So it's really funny how really comes to the mind of the people when something so new as a heat pump may enter their, let's say, uh, surroundings, that they, they must consider this kind of additional factor, whereas some other things are totally, I would say, acquired, like uh, the look of a, of a gas boiler or anything else, like a gas station is also It, it looks terrible. And uh, where I live in the city of Turin in northern Italy, we have some in really nice places. And I'm always like, couldn't you take the time to make it look at least a little bit more discreet? So that's uh, 
yeah, some kind of consideration that that we have to make in order to broaden the social acceptance. But uh, how did you come up with the idea of making augmented reality tool, and how did you build that? So when I first started the site, uh, uh, pumpsheet.com, my main focus was just on kind of bringing the idea that there are these kind of that there are nicer heat pumps out there, and that they can be kind of installed in a nice way. So I did like a kind of a I don't know if you remember, there was one of the first sort of viral uh, or the early kind of viral internet hits was this thing called Hot or Not, where people could like post photos of themselves and then people would rate them depending on like how hot they were. So not a very nice idea, but it got a lot of traction. And it would be like, yeah, that's hey, horrible. <laughs> don't you know, that was, it. that was that was what it was. And it, it sort of really went around. And anyway, I was like, you know, what about like a Hot or Not for heat pumps where you could do exactly the same. And people who had got like a really nice heat pump installation that had been kind of, you know, landscaped in sensitively, you could still see it, but nice greenery around it would get really high marks. One that looked like the back of a factory would get a lower star. But the point was that people would be able to get inspiration for how you could make it look nice and make it something that people thought, yeah, I could imagine sat in my garden having a barbecue with that in the corner and being quite happy and not like, oh, that's taken my garden down. So did that and it got some usage and it was of some use, I think, in helping me collect some nice photos. But, you know, the nice photos are often, you know, someone in some swanky new house or um, well, essentially what I realized is that I think what will be most useful to people is seeing what a heat pump might look like in their own space so that they can take this you were talking about gas boilers earlier. In the UK, certainly most people were familiar with how gas boilers look. And they're just already there when you move into a house. Most people aren't putting them in new right now. Whereas a heat pump, people aren't familiar with them, what they look like, and they would be taking up some new space. So I thought that would be a really helpful thing to provide people with as a tool. So yeah, you asked how I did it. And I'm not a kind of a techie person. So I initially thought, well, it would be amazing to do augmented reality, but I first started with interesting things like, can I make a model of a heat pump out of bamboo canes or um, a kind of a rack that you use in the garden to kind of protect plants from birds so that people could like borrow it from the library and um, bring it home and like move it around and put it in their space and see how much space it took up. And I did, I was playing around with making those things and that was that was fine. And that might still be kind of interesting for people who don't like digital stuff as much. By the way, for people who don't know, you know, augmented reality is this thing where you can essentially hold your phone up or kind of on camera mode, look at the scene on the, on the camera mode, and it sort of overlays a 3D model of an object into the scene. And you can walk around it as if, as if it was actually there. And people might have come across them for, you know, trying out a new table or something in their kitchen they're offered now. But uh, obviously, if you do that, then anyone can just upload it right there and see it there and down on their phone. And um, luckily, there are services out there that you can use to help you build this kind of this kind of service. So I put together 3D models for a smaller pump, a larger heat pump, hot water tanks, which a lot of people now don't have in the UK, which are another thing you might need to see. And yeah, launched it several, several months ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm an early fan because uh, at first you 
you made uh, these really, really, really funny comparisons with uh, with George Clooney. Yeah, I, I have to put that in the show notes because it's really like a hilarious series of, can we call that a meme, where you basically compare the outfit of uh, George Clooney uh, with the with the heat pump, like the gray hair and the mysterious look and, and things like that. And uh, I must say that I'm really into British humor and... I really enjoy when an academic doesn't take themselves too seriously. So I found it was it's really like a, a good combination of uh, of how to make that happen in people's real life and just adapting the research and the also understanding of uh, the barriers uh, for people to adopt a new thing is to 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 reality. And I was just wondering, you know, in Italy we mostly live we don't live in the little house uh, that you have in the UK, but we mostly live in apartments. Are you thinking about developing the same thing for uh, for heat pumps, uh, for in apartment buildings, in uh, in, in co-ops and in, in flats? Because we, for instance, in Italy, we also have the gas boilers. It's usually outside for safety reasons. So is it something that you could uh, you could think of? I mean, it's certainly something that you see in apartments. Obviously, you see sort of air conditioning units outside of... Uh apartments and people's, people's boilers almost more, more commonly. So I think in some ways the, you know, the key thing is that, you know, in the context of, of the UK where people aren't as used to seeing like air conditioning units, like you might get on balconies in some other kind of European locations where there's more cooling. It's not something that people are, are, are as used to seeing. So it's perhaps more helpful here than it might be in other locations, but yeah, certainly it could work there, but you know, here and maybe even, um, you know, in other locations in Europe too, um, that you know, the solution doesn't always need to be individual unit elite heatings. You know, you can have you know, your district heating or something like that for a block, um, which is being looked at more here. So, in practice, how would that work? Uh, like collective solutions? It depends. I mean, if you're thinking about heat pumps, you know, so where I live, so I should put my hands up and say I haven't got a heat pump. The house I live uh, in is a, I've got a kind of a leasehold, which means <laughs> you need like. Um, a permission of a kind of a long-term landlord and it's like a, a smallish flat and so on but basically it would make well and it's a terrace of houses with flats upstairs and downstairs and what would make much more sense in theory for some some for a location like this would be to have a single large heat pump somewhere at the end of the row and then a sort of a distribution system for the heat that went um to all the houses you know in the way that we're familiar with from district heating supplying all the houses so that you wouldn't have to be having multiple units in everyone's garden taking up space. So uh, that's something that's being looked at at the moment. Certainly the trials I've heard about suggest it's quite expensive, but often the, you know, the challenge here is you, until you've kind of proven the model and got the skills and the know-how to do it, the, the costs can't come down. So I think that's really a really interesting option though. Yeah, definitely. We had uh, an episode about uh, district heating uh, last year. Uh, it was uh, in the city of Milan, and that was also really interesting how the city was developing its project using some kind of geothermal energy too. But that would be a really different model, of course. But I think it's really uh, like it really matters also to kind of demystify what what clean energy is and it's not only about uh, solar panels it's not ab only about individual solutions but also about things that you can implement with your neighbors or with your with your 
condo with your co-op or whatever the name of it. So you've done some work and you're still doing a lot of work on uh, those kind of social aspects which of energy demand flexibility. Can you say, explain a little bit what that is in practice and how, why does that matter um, more than ever now? Okay, God, I mean, there's so much I could say about because I find this topic um, super interesting. But I mean, people listening to the podcast might be, you know, familiar with the idea of flexibility in terms of changing patterns of interaction with an energy system that might be turning supply up or down or demand up or down. Because basically, in an, especially in an electricity system, the amount of electricity being supplied and the amount that's being used need to be kind of in constant balance. And You know, for a long time in places like the UK, which has got you know a big centralized system, that's mainly been done by turning power stations up and up and down. Um, you know, fossil fuel uh, power stations, with some turning up and down on the demand side, like turning large you know uh, production facilities on and off, and some control of heating. That's been done for years, but mainly on the demand side. As we go to you know, this situation, you know, of more solar and wind, which we can't turn off and on. Or we certainly can't turn uh, turn on at whim. More of that responsibility for to balance supply and demand is going to be need to, to be done by the users. So people like you and me in our homes. And what I think is really interesting for me about this is, you know, more than maybe at any other time, it creates the potential for us to see us all as kind of being connected as part of this, you know, literal system a grid the electricity network which is affected by what we all do all of our neighbors all of the you know shops and businesses locally and across the country we're all together contributing to that state of that network and if we really want to find a way to make it work using making the best of like the when the sun's shining and when the wind's blowing you know as far as possible we're going to need to make sure that we All of us, you, you, me, and everyone can do the things we want and need to do, making use of those resources when they're available, whether it's right then when the wind's blowing or the sun's shining or using storage. And that requires a load of choices. You know, it becomes easier if you, if you install loads and loads and loads of, renew, of renewables and loads and loads and loads of storage. But that's obviously super expensive. The more that we can kind of work with the grain, work with the patterns of of generation potentially the more you know cost effective it becomes but that's got some interesting implications as well which need thinking through that's absolutely fascinating and i'm working on a flexibility project in uh, the city of Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso where flexibility is absolutely essential because there are not enough uh, electricity available at all time of day and more and more people want to have access to um cooling systems and so it puts enormous pressure on the grid so in this, the context of de developing countries it seems absolutely uh, one of the essential tools to make to make sure that we do the the best out of the of the resources we have uh, namely solar energy for instance instead of building other uh, let's say a very uh, polluting and very highly consuming uh, systems uh, such as gas power plants and, and and things like that so as a researcher focusing on social aspects what do you see as like the 
potential and uh, like a positive impact? And on the other hand, what do you see as barriers to the adoption of flexibility as, at a larger scale for, for people like you and I? Okay, so I work mainly on the kind of the residential, the domestic side. So yeah, I'm thinking about people in their homes. And it's true, you mentioned the opportunities that flexibility has to offer. You know, on the one hand, if you're you know, a household, let's say, and there's a an electricity tariff in place, you're probably familiar with these, which charges less at certain times, you know, less money at certain times, more at others. Traditionally, it's been cheaper overnight. And if you're someone who can take advantage of that, then obviously you stand to make savings if you can use your electricity overnight compared to in the day. But the ability to make those kind of changes isn't the same for everyone. So let's just say, let's take a more extreme example where you've got someone who has their own solar panels and their own battery storage on site. They might be able to do lots of what they need to do with electricity, their washing, charging their car, and so on, with their solar panels. And anything that they don't use, they can store in their battery and then maybe use it to watch television in the evening or something like that. So whenever there's some really expensive electricity available from the grid to buy it in, they can almost always avoid using that power, okay? They can use that kit that they've got without really maybe having much of a change in terms of how they live their life. If you on the other hand, are in a situation where you don't have um, your own generation, you don't have your own storage, your ability to kind of meet, to, to take advantage of those cheaper prices or those benefits is all down to you changing when you do things. So that might be doing things like running the washing machine overnight, in this case, if you've got a washing machine. But then, you know, what if you live in a block of flats with kind of um, thin floors and walls? You know, you might not want to do that because you're destroying your, you know, you're just drawing your neighbor's um, peace and quiet at night. So that's just to illustrate that there are, you know, there's a whole bunch of different situations that people will in will be in that kind of determine how much they might be able to take advantage of, I guess, yeah, the opportunities that flexibility provides. And if, you, if you're in a situation where you really can't avoid the high prices, it could even be imposing kind of extra burdens on you. I mean, I should say that, you know, if we get lots of demand-side flexibility unlocked in the system, ideally that should help keep prices down for everyone because you're not having to you know, build all those new generators and new storage like I talked about to the same extent. So it's always important to get it in there, but it's also then important to think, okay, how can we you know, recognize where people might be in situations where they're not as able to benefit? And then what can we do about that to, to try and open up opportunities to benefit? Yeah, so basically flexibility is about adapting your consumption patterns to when the electricity is produced. And uh, there are ways to make that automatic. There are also some appliances that have that are being de developed that would kind of react to the signals. But there are also things that we as uh, users, as normal people, could do. For instance, have our washing machine work during the day when there is a lot of sun coming from electricity coming from the solar panels that our neighbor might have on their roof. Uh, am I correct? Is, is it something like that? 
That's exactly it. I mean, and it can it can be happening at the national scale, the local scale. I mean, just to mention another um, project which I've been involved in setting up is um, called shouldibake.com. Wow. So this basically, um, it takes information from the, U- the, the Great Britain, actually, sort of central grid operator on the sort of generation mix on the grid. So that provides what the current generation mix is, as well as a forecast. So I, I bake bread at home. And I was always, and just for context, in the UK, in, in Great Britain, we've got quite a lot of renewable electricity generation providing our power, but it can really, really vary from, you know, some days we might be getting 5% of our power from the sun and wind. Other days, like yesterday, I think at one point, we got almost 70% of our power from sun and wind on the grid. And I wanted to be able to know when is the best time for me to bake? You know, should I bake this evening or wait until the next day? So we kind of set up this website, which allows people to do that. And there's a Twitter account as well at Baking Forecast. But the point is, something like baking is, it's kind of an interesting thing to do because you can move it around. It doesn't happen every day at 6.30 in the evening, like eating a cooking an evening meal might be. But yeah, the point is I, I can change my patterns of my patterns of demand in this case, using the oven for electricity to coincide when there's lots of renewables on the grid. But like you say, if my neighbor had solar panels and I didn't, and I could somehow know a, when they were generating and also when they were using power, I mean, let's, let's, let's scale this up to like a block of flats. You know, if I, I'm doing a project on this at the moment, if, if we knew when the power, when the panels were generating and how much of that power was being used by other residents in the grid, I could decide like, yeah, I'll take this opportunity now because there's spare power to bake or do whatever, run my washing machine. Or I might, you know, maybe I could book a slot to do it a bit later. Maybe I could just leave it all down to my smart appliances to do it for me. Um, really interesting to think about the different mechanisms that could be, could be used. Yeah, I, I remember a few weeks ago seeing an article in The Guardian about the kind of appliances and how they would consume less energy. And some, there was something about uh, also the slow cookers that could be a tool. I've never used a slow cooker, but I somehow I also understand that it would make sense to have a slow cooker making their work while there is a lot of electricity coming from solar and clean energy. But I, I really like also the idea of should I bake? Because it's, it's something, it's the pastime that a lot of people have started to enjoy with the COVID. How would you evaluate the success of these tools? Because... I, I expect them to be a little bit niche, but uh, what would be the next steps uh, in your view for, for them? Well, I mean, you make a good point. It, it would actually be, be really good to do some more formal evaluation of some of these approaches. I mean, what I've come to kind of recognize a bit in doing some of these projects, the, the more, I guess, on the ground ones like the, the heat pump one and the, the baking one I just mentioned, is it's nice to think that you can put it out there as a tool for people to use. Let's like with the baking one, that people would follow it and then use it to decide when they bake. And I think maybe there are some people who do, probably a small proportion. And same with the heat pump project, there might be some people at the moment, probably not very many, who use the augmented reality tool. But because it's just a bit of a different way into these topics, which can sometimes be quite dry and formulated around cost and carbon and so on, just because of that, what I think it does is just provides another opportunity to bring it to people's attention. Like the idea that there are different amounts of solar and wind generation on the grid at different times, and therefore different amounts of carbon emissions associated with using electricity at different times, 
just isn't on many people's radars. There are many people who just haven't really given that any thought or had any reason to. And just by coming across it, because someone retweets a tweet or, you know, maybe they listen to a podcast like this or read some article about it, it's like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a thing. And it's, um, it's like advertising in some way. You don't, you don't see a billboard advertisement and then go out and buy that product. But, you know, just next time you encounter the product or the idea, it's, it's somewhat more familiar and it makes it a bit more present for, you know, for people. And I think that's important, you know, so same thing with the heat pump thing, the George Clooney tweet. Yeah, it was fun to do. And I sort of put it together in a few minutes while I was sort of killing time. I probably should have been doing something more rigorous on the site, but that ended up getting like by far the most kind of traction and interest of anything I've ever done on Twitter and brought, you know, interest to the site and so on. So it was great for that reason, just because it was a bit different, you know, it'd be great to be able to do more things like that. So in that respect, I'm just the fact that it's kind of provided an opportunity to engage people with these topics that are super important to kind of reaching net zero targets on its own. I'm, I'm, you know, I think is great. Obviously really want to push further and then provide those supporting tools on the journey to people who can to actually take up things like heat pumps to, for people to lobby or take action where they see that their governments aren't doing what they what they maybe could to be supporting those transitions. You know, it's just a little step in that road, I think. Yeah. Has um, George Clooney retweeted your tweets about him being compared to a heat pump? Not as far as I know. I don't even, I'm not even completely sure he's on Twitter, but obviously that would be amazing. <laughs> So uh, yeah, maybe if you uh, if you've got his contact details, you know. Um, but I was like, <laughs> yeah. So know. that's a message for our listener. If anybody has George Clooney's contact, please put them in con in touch with the with the, with Mike uh, because that would be really amazing. And somehow it would it would also make a difference. I do know that Mark Ruffalo liked heat pumps. He was tweeting about them. So you know they're on the kind of the Hollywood uh, agenda. Let's say. Yeah. No. I mean that's the power of narrative and how to create a good story and this kind of ambassadors of a good cause. I mean, they've been, celebrities have been advertising for, I don't know, perfume and uh, coffee for ages. So uh, why not heat pump? I, somehow it would also be a nice way to say that they care about the environment and uh, their um, commitment goes beyond not taking private planes. You know, people like me who, and, and you know, people like you, I'm sure, who have go to this conference where we met about energy efficiency, I think we maybe get a bit frustrated by the fact that we recognize there's so much potential to do things on the demand side of um, you know, the, uh, the energy system, but that it just often, it just doesn't seem to capture the imagination or the attention of like politicians, of the media, you know, when it comes in comparison to those big centralized developments, you know, there's controversy around solar farms in the UK at the moment, around wind farms, talk about nuclear fusion, all of these things when by far the most beneficial thing that we could do at this stage would be, you know, massive programs of energy efficiency improvements when you think about the co-benefits and just finding any ways to just give a nudge to those things and give them the kind of excitement that actually is within them, if only it could be kind of brought out in terms of the good effects it could have. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it's really the topic of this of this podcast anyway, how to make those things attractive and appealing. And as you said, uh, using the power of imagination to just bring another level of, of consciousness, of awareness. And 
Very often, I think our our sector, the energy sector, and overall sustainability is a little bit dry. Is can be also sad because of of the repercussion of the impact of uh, of let's say fossil energy on on the systems and energy poverty and those, all these topics. And there are people who have studied that. Uh, I should yeah make a note to myself about really how a good story is way more engaging and appealing than another bad one and another sad one. And that's why I think, I mean, you may be the first to really use humor in, in your kind of uh, communication and a kind of project as an academic. So if you have other stories, just share them with us. Well, I mean, I can tell you, someone else you might want to speak to, a colleague of mine, Matt Winning, is actually a stand-up comedian. Wow. And he, for a long time, did stand-up comedy. And well, he can tell you he can tell you about this because you should speak to him. He didn't um, speak about his his sort of climate or energy side of his work in that for a long time. But then he started doing it and um, has really kind of carved out a niche. And he was recently presenting a program about net zero on BBC Radio Four, the national um, broadcaster, and you know, bringing that whether it's humour or people bringing kind of artistic approaches which we hear a lot about now, it needs all of those things just to enliven this topic, which, as you say, there are you know powerful interests fighting against that can seem dry, that can seem depressing. So, yeah, there is lots of people doing work in this area, and uh, I love it, really, because you know it makes uh, life more interesting. And so what would be your takes for the future, and how would you like that to be disseminated, let's say this way, uh, disseminated being a very technical term. So maybe how would you like this kind of initiative to to multiply? I mean, I think I see a lot of good moves. In, you know, I, as I kind of follow, as I've been working in this heat pump area and on Twitter, there are lots of people doing interesting kind of startups to make it the process of people getting these technologies much easier, which I think we need to do. You know, there's you know, to really crudely break it down, there's people who are in a position to be able to afford these technologies for themselves. And for them, it needs to be made as easy as possible, whether it's getting solar panels, batteries, heat pumps. I mean, heat pumps, certainly from the stories I've heard, can still be quite a challenging thing, even just to get installed if you're a committed advocate and want to get, want to get, you know, we need, need to make that easy as possible. And we need to, you know, have a constant pipeline of people who are finding out about them, having the, you know, getting the first attraction, learning about them right through to those people who are on the verge of making a decision. We need to keep that pipeline coming through. And obviously we need, we need people to install them. But then on the other side, there's obviously going to be many people who just aren't in a position, especially now, to be able to afford some of these technologies with high upfront costs. And, you know, this is where clearly organizations like governments, you know, need to sort of step in and, and take measures. And especially now in the, I mean, I'm sure it's the case in other countries in the UK where the government is picking up a massive tab um, in terms of subsidizing energy bills. There, it's you know, government investment um, in energy efficiency measures and in supporting technologies like, um, like heat pumps, which are energy efficiency, energy efficient measure in terms of delivering heat services. But that doesn't mean as well that those things just get done to people who aren't in a position to afford them themselves. Everyone needs to have the opportunity to get engaged in and learn about, you know, these changes that are kind of happening around us in terms of 
how we're heating our homes, how they're being kept warm and so on, to think about what it might be like to know, you know, what is this new technology going to sound like in my house? How is it going to feel different? So, yeah, I think uh, giving people a preview of this net zero future, giving them opportunities to kind of ask questions and then making it as possible as it can be for everyone to kind of get hold of the benefits. That's, I know that's a kind of a very optimistic vision, but what else can you do, you know? Yeah, no, that's a very nice way to wrap things up. So uh, really having a look forward and really reassure people about how things could be like, that's also about building hope and, and trust in the future. And uh, I think it's absolutely essential, especially now with the current uh, crisis we are facing and uh, the terrible, terrible figures we already see and uh, the potentially terrible uh, winter we, we may have ahead of us. So uh, thank you so much, Mike, uh, for all of these um, interesting um, and relevant uh, comments. I invite all the listeners to have a look at your website. You're on Twitter and, and LinkedIn and, and Instagram as well. Am I right? Yep. Yep. If, if you, probably the easiest thing is just to, if you Google heat pump sheet, I'm sure it will come up and then it will lead to me. <laughs> okay. That's great. And it's time also for you to launch your TikTok channel, isn't it? I have got a TikTok channel. Wow. I am not on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a weird place. It's a weird place, but uh, it also allows me to do kind of weird things involving augmented reality heat pump models. So yeah, check it out. Oh, wow. Are they dancing? I've got some growing in a garden, some floating in the air to the Stranger Things soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird world yeah well we are living in a weird time anyway so thank you so much Mike it's been really really good to have you thank you so much thanks very much for having me thanks for listening to Energetic I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders all links and resources are in the show notes Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.